All right. Well, I want to welcome you here to uh, our Wednesday night equip session and welcome to those that are joining us on Facebook or our, one of our streaming platforms. Uh, we're grateful during this season people are able to, uh, to do that. We know we have uh, many families in our uh, church that are having to sit at home this week as uh, illness continues to go around. So a uh, good thing we can, we can join in live or, or virtually. And so in a moment, we'll pray together and get started. Uh, before we get started, I just want to say we asked you on Sunday to pray for our elders and our advisory panel, and uh, we have an important announcement on Sunday. So I just say that to say thank you for praying for us. We're going to pray for that on Sunday, and then we look forward to the next several weeks uh, where we uh, work to make this decision as a congregation together. So let's pray together, and uh, we'll start our time. Father, I thank you that uh, we get to be here. I'm, I'm grateful for the people that are here that are well. And um, while we see so many people around us who are sick, and uh, we know that, God, another uh, wave of this virus spreads across our land, we uh, we help us to not take for granted the times uh, and the many, many people who, who are well, um, but uh, let us also not forget the, the, those who are not well. And we know of, of many families in our church right now who from one place or another have picked up this uh, virus. God, we pray that uh, you would bring an end to this quickly as we have continually prayed during this time. We pray, God, for healing and uh, for those who do have it, that it would not, um, their symptoms uh, would not be severe. And God, would you uh, allow this uh, peak uh, even to um, recede as quickly as it rose, uh, seemingly uh, overnight spreading to so many people? Would it, would it also dissipate just as quickly, we would ask? Uh, Father, we thank you for how you've been leading our church uh, over the last several months, our elders and our advisory panel looking for a new pastor, of, or looking for a pastor of worship, or of um, adult discipleship and outreach and God, we, uh, we're excited about what we get to tell the church on Sunday and uh, what we'll get to do in the coming weeks together as we make that, uh, as we make that decision to call a new pastor here uh, for our congregation. God, would you give us unity in that? Uh, would you uh, help us to uh, ensure that we are doing uh, the right thing as we, as we uh, those who have been a part of this process so uh, clearly believe? So God, would you bless our time tonight as we talk about your word, as we talk about the, the authority of scripture uh, and how it influences the things that we believe to be true uh, about you and about how we can know you uh, as the children of God, we pray. Uh, bless this time now in Christ's name, amen. So this is our second week in our series on the five solas last week. If you weren't able to be here with us or weren't able to uh, catch that so far, either recorded or on our podcast, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, it was um, a fairly significant history lesson. Today's not going to be any, any of a history lesson, but last week was a fairly uh, long history lesson, thinking about uh, the time frame surrounding um, the Reformation, what was happening, what really amounts to 500 years ago, um, and how some questions that were being asked about the church of that day uh, led to 
um, a Protestant Reformation in Europe that ultimately spread around the world. And what those reformers were teaching, and that's really what this series is on, uh, the, the culmination really of the, of the reformers' teaching have been, um, uh, have been summarized in five alones, five solas, which is where we get the series from. And so, as I told you we would do last week after introducing it, what we'll do now for the next uh, 10 Wednesdays that I'm teaching. We're going to have a couple of interruptions and a couple of breaks with some other things in there. Uh, but what I'll be doing is uh, when I teach is we'll take one of the doctrines and, and approach it in two parts. And so that begins today. And we're going to do them really in an order that, that makes sense. So we'll do uh, scripture alone is where we're starting. And so this week and next week, I will be dealing with that sola. What, what does it mean for us to go to scripture alone to inform us on that which the scripture alone should inform us? And, and I'll explain why I, would, why I would say it like that here in just a little while. And today is going to be very doctrinally driven. So the first week that we deal with each of the solas, uh, I'm going to deal exclusively with the doctrine. The goal being that I communicate um, clearly what the, the position is, right? So we're not going to talk a whole lot, if any, in the first week of each of these about what the reformer, why the reformers felt like this was necessary, what they were battling against. And we're also not going to talk about what it means now and why, why it's still important today and how it affects kind of who we are as a congregation and how we relate to um, our own culture and, and the own pressures on the church now. All of that I say for next week, all right? So next week is, is gonna, why, it, why it mattered then and why it still matters now. The first week is just really kind of trying to clarify the doctrines themselves. And this doctrine is one that if you just have regularly come on Wednesday nights quite a bit, um, you, you've heard me teach on before. I actually taught on a whole semester on this when I used to teach a Bible doctrine class on Wednesday nights. And this doesn't go nearly as in-depth as, as that did. But about a year and a half ago, I taught on this subject. I was teaching on Bible intake. That was, we did about a month on uh, how to read and study your Bible. And I, and I did one of those lessons was on, um, was on the doctrines of scripture, because I think understanding what the church holds to be true about the doctrines, about scripture itself matters to how we read the Bible and how we apply the Bible and, and where we uh, place the Bible in a proper position of authority within our lives and within our congregation. And so you may have heard me teach this same stuff before, because let's just be honest, the doctrine hasn't changed, right? So I'm going to teach on the same subject. I'm basically going to teach the same thing because these, these doctrines haven't, they haven't changed. What we hold to be true now is the same thing we hold to be true in 2020 when I was teaching, it's hard to think 2020 was two years ago, um, but in 2020 when I was teaching on this, and I'll probably teach on this same idea every couple of years because it's a really good reminder for us. And it's why I wanted to start with scripture alone because scripture, holding the doctrine of, of sola scriptura, scripture alone is essential to everything else we talk about in, over the course of the next 10 weeks. Because if it's not scripture alone, 
then we can pull in any other teaching from any other source that we consider to be as authoritative or even more authoritative in some cases uh, than Scripture itself, and we could define salvation any way we want. If you were, if you were here last week, you remember me saying that was really the, the crux of the matter was what do people believe about justification? What is it that makes us right with God? And it's why in the second half last week, I talked about the doctrine of justification. So we would have a biblical view of that doctrine. And if you'll notice what I did last week was I taught what the Bible says about justification, not what our church says about it, um, not what um, some smart scholars at some other time and at some other place have said about it, but let's try to find out what the Bible says about it. Why, what I want to do now is really back up and ask this question. Why do we want to go to the Bible? Christians probably don't ask that question enough. We, we probably, um, particularly if you are like me and you grew up around the church a lot, you grew up in the church Church was very influential in my upbringing, and, and I know it was for some of you. It was not for all of you. But for those of you who the church was influential in your upbringing, you may just have, for a lot of your life, maybe for all of your life, just assumed certain things about the Bible, never actually having asked that critical question. Why this? Why, why, what is it that we believe that says, I'm going to test anything else someone says to me against, against the scriptures. Um, and so I think that's an important question for us to ask at, at a, in a, in any time, but it's an important question for us to ask in a series like this, because we're going to make some definitive statements like grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone for the glory of God alone. And our basis for that at every step along the way is going to be scripture. Yes, we're going to look at historic things that reformers said, and we're going to look at modern confessions and see what um, the modern church now believes and what our church holds and why we hold those things and why those things matter because they, they, they're important. But if that stuff is not grounded in Scripture, we've missed the boat entirely. So if sola scriptura is not true, then none of the rest of them are. If we are not going to say we are going to have our understanding of who God is and how God saves people through what God has said in his word alone, then the others inevitably fall apart. The logical conclusion is if sola scriptura falls, the rest, like dominoes after them, fall as well. Because if it's not by scripture alone, then we can add additional caveats to uh, our understanding of grace. We can add additional requirements to our understanding of faith. We can add additional saviors to, uh, to Jesus, right? We are able to do that if we're not relying solely on what the Bible says to be true. So that's our subject tonight. What, what do we need to understand? What do we hold to be true um, from the scriptures itself, self-attesting uh, self to us that it is the very word of God that we should believe above all else. So what we're going to see tonight is some various aspects of a historic uh, Protestant Orthodox understanding of the doctrines of scripture. Now, these things didn't start in uh, 1517 when when Luther nailed the 
95 Theses to the, to the church door, right? It wasn't, these aren't things that uh, John Calvin and some of the other reformers came up with on their own. Um, these were principles that were held by many in the early church for the first, you, you could say at least for the first 500 years of the early church, there's writings from, um, uh, from uh, Augustine in Northern Africa in the 500 AD period, right? Writing about that no other source of teaching rises to the same level as scripture. And so you have numerous early church fathers looking to scripture alone to define numerous doctrines for us, doctrines concerning the church, doctrines concerning Christ, doctrines concerning salvation, that it was, it was the practice of the early church to look to the text and look to scripture and to not allow anything else to rise to the level of scripture um, and then that began to fall away. And for about a thousand years, it had fallen away un until the reformers returned to that position. So these are, these are things that the Protestant church has held for about 500 years. And we could say are, they are things that the early church held for about 500 years uh, at the very beginning of Christianity too. So they're not new by any stretch, Right. And uh, there, there are different aspects of this that we want to kind of explore tonight. So I'm going to give you several definitions as we kind of go through these. Um, and these are kind of in an intentional order because they just progress naturally through these. So the first thing we want to talk about is that the Bible is authoritative. This, is, this doctrine is known as the authority of Scripture. And when we say that the Bible is authoritative, here's what we mean. It means that all of the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, I get that definition from a book we have in our Equip Center called Bible Doctrine. And all of the definitions I'll give you tonight are from Bible Doctrine. I think that that book does a really great job of, I used Justification's definition last week from that book. They do a really great job of giving pretty easy, easy to understand definitions uh, of uh, sometimes complicated doctrines. Here's really what we're saying when we say that the Bible is authoritative. We're meaning that this is the Bible, as we know it, the 66 books making up the Old and New Testament, that this is the Word of God. And it is the word of God, meaning that if we, to, if we do not believe it or if we do not obey it, we are not just not believing or not obeying the scriptures, but we are not believing and not obeying God himself. That's what we are saying when we say that the Bible is authoritative. So where do we get the idea first that scripture is God's word? It's a good question to ask. Why, why would we believe that when here's what we know? We know that every word of this was written, not by God. God didn't, you know, write this on a scroll somewhere and hand deliver it to, you know, a king or a priest or a prophet uh, somewhere along the way. No, this, this book was written in 66 books across um, thousands of years uh, by many different people and compiled by different people and, and translated or, or, or scribed and taken from, from one scroll to the next and from one to the next, passed down from one generation to the next by, by many different people. So to go from 
uh, even a historic understanding of, you know, Moses writing the first five books of the Bible and then, you know, prophets and scribes and kings writing the rest of the Old Testament to the point where um, uh, the apostles uh, write the New Testament, right? We, we have this historic understanding of who wrote it, and yet we would still say that every word of this is God's word. Well, Scripture itself attests to this point. Paul, writing uh, in his second letter to Timothy, says all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may complete, be complete, equipped for every good work. So what Paul writes is that all scripture is breathed out by God, that this, even though it is written with human hands, they are doing so being carried by the Holy Spirit, that God himself is the one breathing it out. Now, by the time Paul is writing Second. Uh, Timothy, not all of the New Testament had been written, but much of the New Testament had been written. It's already circulating by this point amongst uh, churches on three different continents. They're, they're passing these letters around. They're passing these gospel works and they're passing these things around to one another. And what we begin to see in later books of the Old Testament is they, they start to attribute in, in just some little bitty ways, they start to attribute to, to some others. So when Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God, he's not just talking about Hebrew scripture. He's not talking about what he grew up with in the Hebrew faith, thinking about the Old Testament. He's thinking also about the other works of the apostles in the New Testament, that it is all breathed out by God. So then to... So if it's from God, then to not believe what God has said or to not obey what God has said is to not believe or to not obey God. Because what, what does it do? What, is, what does he keep saying there in 2 Timothy 3? For it is all profitable then. For what? For teaching, for, for, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may compl be complete equipped for every good work. So it speaks to the reason that God gave, gave us scripture. God gave us scripture. He breathed out scripture so we could know certain things about him and we could know certain things from him, making it profitable to us so that we could teach it, so that we could correct one another with it, so we could train one another with it, ultimately becoming complete, equipped for every good work. So when we say that the scripture is authoritative, and we say that it is breathed out by God, that it is the word of God in such a way that to not believe it or not to do what it says is to not believe God or not to do what God says. We, we run the risk of elevating the scripture. Now, bear with me here what I'm going to say. We run the risk of elevating scripture to a place that the Bible doesn't elevate it. So when we say that the scripture is authoritative, that is true. I believe from the very beginning to the very end, the scripture is the word of God, meaning that it is authoritative. But that does not mean that it contains every truth that there is in scripture. Or that, there, that does not mean that it does not contain every truth that there is in the world, right? And it doesn't mean that there can't be other authorities in the world, right? God has placed, we're told that God has placed governing earthly authorities in our world. And there's certain things that the Bible is and there's certain things that the Bible isn't, right? Well, let's just think about some of the things that the, the, the Bible isn't, right? The, the Bible isn't a math book. So if you want to know like true, concrete, I'm not talking about theoretical math. I'm talking about math that I can even do, right? Two plus two equals four, like basic 
concrete math. The Bible's not going to tell you those things. It's not intended to tell you those things. Math books are going to tell you those things, right? The same is true about sciences and other things, right? That, that there are God-ordained truths in our world that aren't necessarily in Scripture. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but I want to view that in light of the authority of Scripture here just to say that while there are other truths in this world, for us to say that the, the, the Scripture is authoritative, it means that we don't elevate any truth that speaks about what the Bible has spoken about to the place of the Bible. That's what the authority of Scripture means, is that if the Bible speaks on the subject, and again, there are subjects the Bible doesn't speak on, but if the Bible speaks on a subject, we don't get to take something else that speaks on that subject and rise it to the level of what God has said, because God is the one who gets to have the final word he's the one who about those things that he has he gets to have the final word about everything but the bible doesn't tell us everything so the things the bible does tell us are the things that we must go to the scriptures alone so the teachings of the church confessions of faith writings of church fathers all of these things can be very helpful so we're not i'm not here to discredit our church has an official statement of faith it's called the baptist faith and message i think it's a very very helpful document our church has uh, six core beliefs and six core values that define kind of some central first and second tier doctrines of our church and then how those play out through what we value and do as a congregation. I think those things are very helpful. Reading what modern scholars and, and ancient scholars and early church fathers, reading what these people have said, these things are all helpful. But at any moment, they contradict what God has said in his word. They are no longer helpful. We can't, we can't raise those things to a level of authority because God has spoken. It's also important that we don't misuse Scripture. That we don't misuse the authority of Scripture uh, and its authoritativeness, right? Is that a word? Is authoritativeness a word? I don't know. In its authority. Let me just say it like that. That what we don't, what scripture is not intended to be and what I think some people, I know people do and I know historically the church has done is we've taken something that the Bible doesn't say, we've twisted it to make the Bible say that thing in order to control people and in order to tell people what they're supposed to do, and not in a way that, hey, the Bible's informing what I'm supposed to do out of obedience to God, not in that way, but that I want someone to do the thing that I want them to do, and so I'm going to find some place in Scripture that kind of speaks to that in a way that's not honest and not true, um, and twist what the Bible has said. And so what we're not saying that the Bible, when we're saying the Bible is authoritative, what we're not saying is that you get to beat somebody else up with it to make them think or act or do what you do or what you want them to do. And I think the church has been guilty of that. Let's just be honest, right? The, the church throughout the ages, and there are still aspects of uh, the, the Western American um, church today that, that is that can be at least abusive with, with the scriptures, uh, making them say things they don't say, telling people that they say things they don't say in order to control people 
and have people do something that we want them to do, and it's not something that the Bible's wanting them to do. So when we say that the scripture is authoritative, here's what we're saying ultimately, that the things that God has spoken on, God is the one that spoke on them. That if his word deals with it, we need to recognize that he is the one who has spoken. And to not believe what he has said is to not believe him. Or to not obey what he has said is to not obey him. And to rise anything, to take anything else, any other teaching, any other person, any other authority in this world, and to raise it to the level of scripture on those things that the scripture has spoken, is to, is to idolize someone, right? Because that's ultimately what idolatry is, is to raise someone or raise something to the level of God himself, right? You shall have no other gods before me, that God is the authority. And so that's, this is incumbent upon us then to recognize that we should always go to scripture. We should test every other authority in this world against scripture. Now, if, if scripture doesn't speak on that thing, right? Then it's fine. I can believe those things and I can even take that thing as authoritative and and, and because God can ordain that in, in uh, the natural sense. But what God has said in his word takes precedent over all and everything else that would claim otherwise. Now, when we hold that, the author, that, that scripture is authoritative, there are then some kind of natural assumptions that we begin to make off of that, right? So the authority of scripture is kind of this umbrella doctrine, and if you would imagine off of that umbrella, right, maybe are hanging some of these smaller tassels that because we believe in the authority of scripture, we then also affirm some of these other doctrines that come along with it. One of them is known as the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. What the sufficiency of scripture means is that God said what he said. <laughs> and what, what he said, what he wanted us to have, we have. And there's not any part of it missing. That, that was, I, you don't hear a whole lot about this anymore. Maybe it doesn't fascinate people anymore. But I can remember a decade, maybe even 15, 20 years ago, people became fascinated by the lost books of the Bible. Do you remember these things? You, you, like the History Channel. There were books, like you could actually, you could go buy books that contained the lost books. of. Well, they weren't lost, obviously, because anyway. Um, and it, and, it, and they, they were always, well, this is what they don't want you to know. Well, this isn't a lesson on that, but let me just say something to you, right? Anything that somebody's claiming like, oh, this belongs in the New Testament, you know, the, the shepherd, the, there's, there's all, there's any number of them, the gospel according to Thomas, there, there's lots of them out there, right? These things were all written hundreds of years. Most of them find their sources in the three and 400 ADs, if not after that, okay? The, this was written, they were written long time after the early church, like long time, okay? Um, and then there's, there's writings, there's apocryphal writings that took place um, after the close of the Old Testament canon, before the, before the New Testament. And, and there's, there's some, you know, some history there and some other things that, that could be useful to us. But there, there was this fascination of, well, maybe we're missing something, right? Maybe, maybe there's something that God really wanted us to know. Maybe, you know, Paul even references a third letter to Corinth that he wrote. He, he references it, maybe even wrote four, depends on how you read it. We only have two. 
So here's, here's, when we say that God has spoken through his scripture, the, the scripture is authoritative. Another thing that we're saying is that what God has said is what we have. And what we have is what God has said. And it is what God wants us to have. That, that there's not a lost book of the Bible that God's up there. Could you picture this for a minute, right? God's up in heaven going, oh, if they would have just found, you know, this other book, they would know. God, God's not doing that. Okay. The books that we have in the scriptures, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, those are the ones God wanted us to have. That God preserved his word. Part of sufficiency is a recognition that, that God, through the hands of men, through, through, his, um, you know, th- through his children, throughout the ages, preserved his word in such a way that we can trust it, that, it is, that, that it's still here. And that what God intended for each stage of redemptive history to have is what those people needed to have to that point for salvation, for trusting him, and for obeying him. Meaning that what we have is the complete canon. It's closed. This is Bible's known as the canon. It, it's, it's done. It's finished. There's nothing else. Nothing else is going to add to it. The next time we hear the word of God is when, we're going to, when we hear Jesus himself speaking, right? In, in, uh, in, the, new heaven, in the new heaven and in the new earth. That, that, that's it, right? We're, this, is, this, is all, this is what we're going to have. Um, for God to say, but that's not always been true throughout redemptive history. Remember, redemptive history begins in the garden with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve speaking with God, that's the word of God, that's what they needed to hear. And then what God reveals at each stage of redemptive history is what those people needed to have. And so for a very long time, there was not very much of it. And then what the Old Testament saints, Old Testament Israelites needed to have, God had given to them, right? And so at each stage of redemptive history, um, God God has revealed certain things. God has spoken his word uh, through, his, through his word. God has spoken his word through, through the uh, writings of men for the people of that day. And that was what they needed to believe. That was what they needed to know. So God has not spoken any additional words. If scripture is sufficient, then God has not spoken any additional words that we are required to believe or obey. So this is why we part ways with people like Mormons, right? Because Mormons, this is a good example of it. They're not the only people that do it, but it's a good example of it. One that we talked about back in the fall when we were looking at the gospel for all and how to share the gospel with uh, people from different belief systems and different worldviews, right? There are lots of doctrines that the Mormons have that are different than us. And the reason they have those doctrines is because they've added to the Bible. They have a whole nother book. They call another testament of of Jesus Christ, right? The Book of Mormon. Um, well, the Book of Mormon is not the Bible, because God, there's nothing that God has said in the Scriptures. There's no, there's no secret knowledge, which is what people throughout the ages have kind of looked for. They've looked for some kind of secret understanding or secret knowledge, and and if if I can just figure that out, and people have flocked. I mean, throughout throughout the ages of Christianity, people have flocked to um, pastors and theologians who, who want to teach them some kind of cryptic thing. You know, also, you remember, around the same time that the lost books of the Bible were really popular, so was the Bible code. Remember, like the Da Vinci Code book had come out. I don't know the movie had come out at that point with Tom Hanks, but the, the book was out, and people got really into, like, deciphering the codes of the Bible. Folks, there ain't no code in the Bible, okay? 
God has said what he said, okay? And, um, and, and what he said is sufficient. You, you, don't have to, you, know, the, you don't have to go to somebody that's got some kind of secret wisdom or secret knowledge. What God has said is what God has said. And what God has said is entirely sufficient for us uh, to know everything that we need to know about him. Now, here's what this, the sufficiency of scripture doesn't mean, right? I think this is really important. It doesn't mean that the Bible tells us everything that there is to know, which I've already addressed, right? It doesn't tell us about math. It doesn't tell us about certain things within science. It doesn't, the Bible, it, it's a limited book. It's only got a certain number of pages with a certain number of words. It can only do so much. But you know, even on the subjects that the Bible speaks on, God, right? The person of God, the redemptive plan of God, the historic people of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, um, the, the uh, extension of the gospel into the world through the New Testament church, the revelation of Jesus that we will return one day, right? The Bible speaks on all of these things, but do you know the Bible doesn't speak exhaustively on all of those things? That there are things about God you don't know. There are things about God that you won't know even if you read the Bible all the way through every year of your life. Because the Bible is the word of God. It is the authoritative word of God, but it is limited. It is not exhaustive. And so the Bible, and the Bible even admits this. There are places in scripture that we're told, right? Um, John says, if, if, if we told you everything that there was to, to tell you about Jesus, it'd fill all the books in all the world. Well, we've got this one. But don't let that be disheartening to you because you may be sitting there going, well, there are some things that I really wish God would have said. Or maybe there are some things that I wish God would have been a little more clear on or that the Bible, listen, God has told us exactly what he wants us to know. There's nothing else that's gonna be on the test, okay? Right? This is, it's not a trick question that what God has revealed in his word is wholly, entirely sufficient uh, to tell us everything that we need to know about him, not everything there is to know about him, but everything that we need to know about him, everything there is, we need to know about salvation, everything we need to know to trust him 100% perfectly, everything we need to know to obey him. There's not missing pieces of it. Even though there are things it doesn't tell us. The things it doesn't tell us are things we did not need to know anyway to be able to do any of those things, right? Because what God has said is what God intended to say. And what God intended to say is what he needs his church to know, all right? So that's one of the tassels kind of hanging off the authority of scripture. Another that's hanging off of that is known as the clarity of scripture. And the clarity of scripture means that, uh, means that the Bible is written in such a way um, that it, that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. So just follow the natural progression of this, right? You have, scripture is authoritative. It is the word of God to, to not believe it, um, to not obey it is to not believe and not obey God. God has told us in scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, God has told us in scripture, everything that we need to know, to know him, to love him, to be saved by him, to follow him, to obey him, all of that 
is, is in there. But what if we don't, what if we aren't able to read it? What if, what if it's, what if it is written in code, right? What if we have to, to, to be able to, you know, make these connections that, that are just a normal person isn't able to make? Well, the good news is that's, that's not the Bible. And you may go to the Bible sometimes and there may be some parts of the Bible that seem somewhat confusing to you. There may be some parts of the Bible that require a depth of knowledge and understanding of historical events, that under, uh, a depth of knowledge of, of the genre that the Bible was presented in. There are parts of our series in Daniel. That, I mean, even this Sunday, there are two verses in uh, Daniel chapter 2 that are s- somewhat contested in that some people think they mean one thing, some people mean, think they mean another, some, something else. All of the other verses, like 37 verses or something, I think, in, in Daniel chapter 2. All of the other verses, like, everybody, pretty read, everybody reads it, and they read it pretty clearly. Like, everybody kind of agrees. And you get to these two, if you know Daniel 2, it's the part with the feet, you know, on the statue. I'll, I'll talk about it on Sunday. Uh, but it's, it, it gets a little bit like, eh, it could mean this, it could mean that. And so the, it's this, the clarity of Scripture doesn't mean that there, there aren't those things. But these big picture ideas of Scripture, who is God? What is God doing in redemptive history? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done for us on the cross? What does, what does God expect for, from, his, from those who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved and, and through obedience to him? Like these things are abundantly clear in Scripture. And people can know them. Psalm 19 verse seven says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So what does that mean? In poetic form, it means that I can go to the scriptures and understand them. He will help me to understand them. I, I, don't, I, don't, you know, I don't have to look for the code. I don't have to look for the enigma. I don't have to try to figure out what it's saying that in the main, and yes, there are some difficult parts, but those difficult parts tend to not speak to major doctrines of scripture. The major doctrines of scripture, that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That Jesus is God personified, dying in our place so that we might have life. These things the Bible speaks to in abundance, in an abundance of clarity. But they do require spiritual eyes and ears to discern them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what Paul's not affirming there is that, again, he's not affirming this multi-level that the further deep down you go, the more you figure out all of the code and all of the riddles. And if you've ever heard, and there are preachers that preach on these numerology things and you know, the third verse of this chapter and the fourth verse of this chapter and how they go. That's just a bunch of nonsense, okay? Because the, you don't have to be able to do that to understand the Bible. And which is what you do have to do. Here's what Paul is affirming in 1 Corinthians 2. He's affirming that to understand the scriptures, you have to have eyes that are different than the ones that God gave you at birth. You have to have a heart that is different than the one that God gave you at birth, because the ones that we're born with are blind to the truths of God. The heart that we're born with is dead in its 
trespasses and sin. It's, it's a heart of stone. But when we receive a heart of flesh from him, when we are made alive in Christ, when the blinders are removed, we're able to go to scripture and to see it clearly, to understand what, what God is saying. So the natural person doesn't accept these things because he can't. But the spiritual person does understand these things because the Holy Spirit himself is the one that is helping. So what does the clarity of scripture not mean? It doesn't mean, as I've already said, that all of the Bible is equally understandable. There are some things in the Bible that are really clear and really easy to understand. Um, and then there are some things in the Bible that, that are going to require historical context. They're going to require, you know, deep dives into, um, into genre and intent of the author. Um, and that's mostly where we get hung up. A lot of where we get hung up is that we live in a different day. We speak a different language. We, we, live in a different culture and, and those things matter. And we're used to consuming certain types of media that is different, right? I think it's the main reason so many people struggle like with the book of Revelation, right? It's because we don't have anything similar to um, uh, ancient Hebrew apocalyptic writing. And so we don't understand the genre. And so because we don't understand the genre, we don't understand what it says, right? If we just, but if we learn a little bit about the genre, then all of a sudden it really doesn't become all that, it's really not all that difficult because we've understood how people actually read that kind of literature back when it was written. It's not all equally understandable, uh, but it doesn't mean you can't understand it. It also doesn't mean clarity of scripture also doesn't mean that there won't be disagreements from time to time or from church to church, from Christian to Christian. Um, we should, where we should have agreements over, and over those things that the Bible is very, very clear on. <laughs> and these, these things, first level, you know, first order doctrines, these, these doctrines that make us, um, that we believe unto salvation. Th these are the things that, that we may agree on. And then, and then the further less clear things may become, right? We're getting away then from doctrines that save people and more into, more into faith and practice things. And maybe we have some disagreements on those and that's fine. Another thing clarity of scripture doesn't mean, and, and I think this is a big one for our day. I think this is one of the greatest um, challenges to the modern church, uh, particularly in, in America, is that we've become so individualistic in our faith that faith throughout scripture is a community, it's a, it's a shared process, right? Now, no one can save you. Um, you know, your mama can't save you. You, you, you gotta call on Jesus and, and the blood of Christ applied to your life. But when, when that happens, we then, we're then placed in a community and we're a part of community. In the Old Testament, we're, we're, a, we're a community of people and a community of faith. But we hear teachings like the, that scripture's clear, right? And that those who go to it with, with um, seeking help from the Holy Spirit, with spiritual eyes, we don't understand it. We end up over applying that and affirming what I think some people want to hear is, well, all I need is me and my Bible and I'll, I'll be okay. Or preacher, I don't need, I don't need you. I don't, I don't need a small group. I don't need a Sunday school teacher. I don't need you know, theologians, I don't need to listen to any of that. All, all I got to do is have, have me in my body. Listen, yeah, you're right. If you have the ability to read and understand scripture, and that's great. 
But, but if you have read and understood scripture, here's what you would understand from it. We need each other. We need each other because we help each other. You go back to what Paul said there in that 2 Timothy 3 passage, right? All of those were like group activities. Teaching is a group activity. Correcting is a group activity. Reproving is a group activity. Training is a group activity. These are things we do together. These are the things that the scripture does in us together. So yes, you can read your Bible on your own and it's gonna be clear and you're gonna know what it says, but hopefully it's gonna lead you back into community to where we're reading it and we're studying it and we're doing this together. The last thing this doesn't mean is, this, this, this is another statement, very popular in America. Well, this is what it means to me. Every, about every time I, we've ever had a, a you know, small group leader training here at the church, I always deal at least with this for, for a little bit. Uh, folks, you don't get to have what the Bible means to you and the person next to you get to have what the Bible means to them and both of those things be equally true, okay? The Bible means what it means. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, right? Now there may be points on it we disagree on and that's fine, but ultimately somebody's right, right? And we may even disagree, we may agree to disagree over minor issues, but ultimately somebody's right. We'll find out one day who's right because the, what the Bible means is what it means. Those toes on that statue in Daniel chapter two, they mean something. I think I know what they mean. Somebody else may disagree with me, and, but one of us is going to be right, or we're both going to be wrong and it means something else. That's always a possibility too. A little bit of humility goes a long way in Bible reading, particularly on some of the, some of the harder things, right? But we need each other and we sharpen each other with scripture. All right, another tassel off of this is the necessity of scripture. The necessity of scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel for maintaining spiritual life and for knowing God's will. In Romans chapter 10, we read, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's great, right? That is a definitive statement. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Then Paul asks some rhetorical questions. How then will they call on him if they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It is impossible to know the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation without someone telling you what the Bible says or you going to the Bible, so you could, you know, this can be done alone. There, there are testimonies of people pull out, you know, they're in a hotel room and they're in a dark place and they pull out that Gideon Bible and the Lord directs their path and praise God for it. In most cases, what's the normative case though? The normative case is one person telling another, a parent telling a child, a friend telling a friend, a missionary telling someone their own mission to, this is what God has said in his word about what it means to come to faith in Jesus. You, there is no gospel salvation outside of the proclaimed word of God. That seems like a harsh statement. And it's one that many people, I, I think, many people in the modern church, <clears throat> if, they've not, if they've not publicly walked back in their hearts, they kind of do. We, we, I think our churches, maybe not this one, but I, but I do think many churches may be full of people who if you really were to press them on it, they would say, well, I don't know, God could save them another way. No, listen to me. How, how will they, what, what, what does Paul say here? <laughs> how will they 
uh, call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe if they have not heard and how will they hear without someone preaching and how will they preach unless someone is sent. So to know the gospel is to hear it from the scriptures. There, that, is, that is the way that God speaks. That is the way that God reveals himself. And then once we've believed the gospel, then it's the way that we maintain our spiritual life. That's why Jesus said, right, quoting the, during, during his temptation, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. It's the way that we maintain our lives is by knowing the word of God. It's not only the word of God unto salvation through the gospel that it proclaims, but it's also the word of God day by day teaching me how to maintain spiritual life, telling me what it is that God desires of me to do now that I have these spiritual eyes and this heart of flesh that he has given me. It is the only place that we can know certainly what God's will is. People at different times of our lives, you know, in different stages, we get all wrapped up and I just really want to know what God's will is for this. Well, unless the Bible has specifically said it, unfortunately, the answer is you can't know for certain if something is God's will. You just can't. You can try to discern it. And I do believe like the Holy Spirit prompts us. I definitely think, which is why we're a congregational church. It's why we do things together as a congregation. I think the congregation making decisions together, being led by a plurality of elders that are making decisions together, that doing these things that the Bible kind of sets up as some of these principles helps us to make sure that we're following God, right? But we'll talk about things like God's will. When we call a new pastor, like we're, we're gonna be doing in the next few weeks, right? We talk about, hey, this is where we think God is leading us. And this is, you know, Ultimately, it's, is this God's will for our church, right? Well, there's nowhere I can turn in this Bible that tells us to hire the guy that we're gonna present to you on Sunday, right? There isn't. And so do we know for certain? No, we can't know for certain. Here's what I can know for certain. I can know for certain the things that the Bible tells me are God's will. Those are the things that I can know for certain. Everything else, it's my responsibility just to live as faithfully as I can. So I can know things like God exists. Yeah, or so, so I can know, like the, these are... Outside of scripture, I can know things like God exists, right? I can, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. Outside of scripture, I can know certain moral laws, like every culture in the world knows that murder is wrong. That's why it's codified in every code of law around the world and has been for, for centuries because that's part of the moral law of God that's encoded in our hearts. So there's certain things that we can know, but we can't know specific things about who God is, how to be saved, how to follow him, how to understand his will. We can't understand those things outside of scripture itself. So the Bible does, the clarity of, or the, sorry, the necessity of scripture doesn't mean that the Bible is the only place we can know things about God, but it is the only thing we can know certain for sure that this is who God is. And anything that contradicts that is going to be false because of, remember, this is a tassel hanging off of the bigger umbrella of the authority of God's word. Now there's one more I want to deal with. And it is, it, it is one that they did not deal with quite very, very much during the Reformation. They didn't have to. Um, it's an issue that arose in, um, well, let's just say since the Enlightenment. Um, and it's, it's more of a modern era issue. And when the reformers were arguing about the authority of God's word, 
They were arguing with people that believed that it was God's word. They believed that it was all true. They just happened to believe that there were other things that were also true that could be elevated to the same place as God's word. That was the argument. Since the 1800s, the argument has somewhat shifted even within quote unquote Christianity and Christian churches to where you have entire sects of Christianity denying the actual truthfulness of God's word. And so the final task we'll talk about is the inerrancy of scripture. When we say the inerrancy of scripture, what we mean is that scripture in its original manuscripts, the, the original way that it was written by the author does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now that's kind of a roundabout way of saying this. The Bible is completely true. That's what the inerrancy of scripture means. And we hold that the Bible is completely true because God's word does not lie. Numbers 23, 19 tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. So this means that the Bible doesn't just contain God's word. The Bible is God's word. That was the debate that was raging in the early 1900s. And still, look, people have pretty well in theological circles, circled the wagons into these varying camps. And so the debate doesn't really even happen anymore. You're either in an inerrantist church because you believe that the Bible is inerrant or you're not in an inerrantist church because you don't believe the Bible is inerrant. You really don't see a ton of discussions on these things as much anymore. But the big question in the 1900s, early 1900s, was is the Bible infallible or is it inerrant? And so those two things kind of sound like the same thing. Well, but they weren't saying the same thing. What some were saying was that the Bible is infallible, meaning that the parts that, that are God's word are completely true. But maybe there are parts of the Bible that aren't actually God's word. And so they started saying phrases like the Bible contains God's word. You see, the, you, you see how that's one step away, right? So if the Bible contains God's word, that means that some of the Bible is God's word and some of it isn't. So then who gets to determine what part is God's word and what part isn't? Well, the reader or the person that's saying the Bible is infallible, not inerrant. And so in the, um, was it the 60s, 70s, there was the, the Jesus seminar. So well-known, fairly liberal scholars got together um, and to try to determine what Jesus actually said in the Bible and what he didn't actually say that was in the Bible. They voted with rocks. You ought to, you ought to look at it. I don't have time to talk about it. They used, they used different color rocks to say what God said. And here's ultimately where they ended up. You ought, if you've never read about the Jesus Seminar, I encourage you to go, go read about it. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting part of Christian history. And here's ultimately where they landed, right? Anything that people think is kind of mean that Jesus said, ah, Jesus didn't say that, Right? Anything that Jesus said that was, you know, really positive and happy, kind of universal, you know? Oh yeah, Jesus must have said those things. That's really kind of where they ended up because we become the, we become the arbiters. In that system, we become the arbiters. Some true, some false. Well, who gets to determine what's true and what's false? The, the reader does, right, under that system. But we hold, and I believe the authority of Scripture demands, by the way, that we, if we're going to say that the scripture is authoritative in the same way that the reformers said that the scripture was authoritative, in the same way that the early church fathers said that the scripture was authoritative, we have to say 
that it is also true, that it doesn't just contain God's word, but it is God's word and that God is not lying. Even in the small things, because if God is lying in the small things, then he can't be trusted in the big things. And if God is lying in the small things, then can we lie? <laughs> because God lied, and if God lied, then it's okay for us to lie. Well, no, we can't. So for man to call God a liar, for us to say, no, Jesus didn't actually say that, or God didn't actually mean that, is again, idolatry. It's us to exalt God over, or exalt ourselves over God. Now, just quickly, we've got four minutes left. What, is it, what does this not mean? What, because the inerratists, uh, those who are, subscribe to the inerrancy of Scripture, have been accused of a lot of things over the last 150 years. Um, and this was ultimately what, if you've been Southern Baptist for a really long time, this was what, what was known as the conservative resurgence was, was about that took place in the 1980s. Um, you know, 40 years on now, this, this, was, this was the subject was are we going to be inerrantists or not? And we had, our seminaries were full of people who weren't. And, but most of our churches were. Most of our churches and people in the pulpits were preaching that the Bible was inerrant, but most of our seminary professors were teaching otherwise. And so there was, it took about a decade. There was kind of a come to Jesus in the Southern Baptist life. And, and this is what it was over. Unfortunately, the inerrantists won. And so that's what's now taught in all of our seminaries. And, but there's a lot of accusations that are made about people that hold that. And you say, so, so what, is it, what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that, and I'm just going to give you a couple. There's several things that it doesn't mean. But it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't use the language of men to describe things that God is saying. Right? And so people often ask, and it came up in my small group just, just a couple of weeks ago. What, what was the subject? I forget. I've slept since then. But there was a number in the Bible, you know, it was around, I think it was 40, because 40 is kind of a common number. And, oh, it was, it was, you know, Moses was in the wilderness for, you know, 40 years and then 40 years, you know, these things. So does that mean that it was to the day? Well, no. And here's the example of that, right? If you, if you say, Ryan, how old are you? Well, I'm 41. Am I exactly 41? Is my birthday today? No. I'm 41 and... I don't know, nine months? God, I'm about to be 42. Um, you know, time just goes by, doesn't it? Um, but did I lie to you right then? No, I didn't lie to you right then. I didn't, that's not a lie for me to say I'm 41. It even wouldn't be a lie for me to back up and say, I'm in my 40s. To even use more general language, right? That's not a lie. Ask some of these ladies in here how old they are, and they may get real general on you, you know? They're not lying to you. Now, if I say I'm 29, I'm lying to you, which may be what my wife would say to, to you if you asked her, but um, she was 29 for a long time. She really didn't want to turn 30. She just stayed 29. But, it, right, you're, I'm not lying. If I'm in my 40s, right? And so the Bible uses round numbers. It uses figures of speech. It uses, um, it, it uses lots of language that we use, and that doesn't mean that God... So, so, that's a false accusation. It also doesn't mean, and I think inerrantists don't do ourselves any favors on this. It also doesn't mean that the whole thing is intended to be taken absolutely literal. You know, something can be true and metaphorical at the same time. Because if it was intended to be metaphorical, if it was intended to be allegorical, if it was intended to be an image, then the image translated literally, applied literally, is actually the wrong answer. 
So I'll just go back to Daniel too, right? I you always get this because I, you know, I study sermons all week long. So these are the things that are in my mind, right? Daniel 2 is this dream of this big statue made up of different things from its head down to its toes and this rock that comes and destroys it and ultimately fills up the whole earth. It's pretty easy to interpret. It's one of my favorites. It really is. I'm, I'm looking forward to preaching on Sunday. I really like, I really like this, this dream um, and, and the interpretation of it. Well, and this is one nobody interprets literally, okay? So it's a great example because it's kind of an extreme one. But that's, that dream doesn't mean that, that, that there's one day going to be this giant statue made of gold and silver and bronze and clay, iron mixed with clay at the feet. And that one day this big rock's gonna come smash it, right? That's not what that means. Nobody takes, nobody takes it to, to mean that what it means. And Daniel even tells us it's not what it means, that that represents some things that were to come after the Babylonian empire. Um, ultimately leading to, to Jesus. Jesus is the rock. Okay, that, that's an easy one. Um, so so that's, a, that's a good example. We're not thinking that's a literal statue. Well, sometimes we do that in other parts of scripture too. Um, when it wasn't intended to be taken literally, like, a, you know, an actual statue, it was intended to tell us something, to teach us a lesson, to, to guide us in something, to be a metaphor, to be an allegory. These are all devices that were used. Um, so it doesn't mean that you have to turn to the Bible and, and to, you know, think that, oh, this, this has got to mean this because the literal, inter- well, it, the, the truth may not be in a literal interpretation. It may be in, but if the Bible affirms something happened, then it happened. That's what inerrancy means, right? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. You know, people are like, so you actually believe Jonah was swallowed by this big fish? Absolutely, I believe Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. I have no problem at all believing that Jonah was swallowed by a, three, by a big fish and thrown up three days later. And here's why. My entire faith rests on a man getting up out of the grave, right? So if I believe that, the big fish becomes not all that big of a deal to me, right? Like that, that's not even a real big challenge for me to believe. You know, the fiery furnace, the Daniel Alliance, those things aren't a big deal you know, in the context of he was dead and no longer was dead, right? So if the Bible affirms something, it affirms it. But in, in other teachings and other ways, we just want to be careful not to make the Bible say something that, that it doesn't say. So I'm out of time. Um, let me wrap this up. When, when, we're, when we're trying to think about why did it matter and what we're going to do next week, why did it matter in the Reformation, why, why does it matter now, um, it's important for us to ask that question first, right? Why the Bible alone? And it's because for us to know what God has said, we have to go to his word. Um, and, and we have to seek with spiritual eyes to understand it and to live it, to apply it, recognizing that it is absolutely necessary. Uh, for us to know who God is and how he has saved us and what he wants uh, out of us for as we live obedient lives, obedient lives to him. So let me pray for us and we'll be done. God, thank you for your word. Um, Would you help us to grow in our love and desire for it? Would we hide it in in our hearts that we may not sin against you? Would you continue to birth within us passions um, to know it more clearly, to proclaim it to others so that they too might believe it be saved according to the gospel of Christ uh, and follow you as you've instructed in your word, we pray. Let us be defined by what you have said of us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for those that joined us online. Hope to get to see you. Hope some of you are feeling uh, better really soon. Thanks for those that are in person. We'll see you on Sunday.